Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship by Venture for Canada. Venture for Canada is a national charity on a mission to foster the entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. Our vision is a Canada where young people can equitably realize their entrepreneurial potential to help build one of the most prosperous entrepreneurial ecosystems in the world. The Right Honourable David Johnston was Canada's 28th Governor General. During his mandate, he established the Rideau Hall Foundation, a registered charity that supports and amplifies the office of the Governor General in its work to connect, honour and inspire Canadians. Prior to his installation as Governor General, Mr. Johnston was a professor of law for 45 years and served as president of the University of Waterloo for two terms and principal of McGill University for three terms. He holds degrees from Harvard, Cambridge, and Queens, and has received more than three dozen honorary degrees or fellowships. He has authored or co-authored more than 30 books. He was also named Companion of the Order of Canada in 1997. Mr. Johnson has chaired or served on many provincial and federal task forces and committees, and has served on the boards of more than a dozen public companies. In this episode, we discuss the challenges and opportunities to make Canada more innovative. I am incredibly excited to have former Governor General of Canada, David Johnston, on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship, this afternoon. David, how are you doing today? Doing fine. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I think that there are few people in Canada who are better suited to speak on the topic of innovation and how to foster uh, an innovative culture. Can you first describe a little bit what exactly is innovation? What does that word uh, mean? Well, it's simply doing things better. And it applies not simply to technological innovation or scientific innovation or business innovation. It's also social innovation. And you know, Canada is somewhat of a social innovation a country built on the notion that from many different streams, one can build a country that is somewhat heterogeneous, but actually functions with a very attractive harmony. In fact, Canada stands in that list of fully functioning democracies of which the Economist Intelligence Unit is, uh, is only enjoyed by 8.3% of the world's population, along with Iceland, Norway, Sweden, New Zealand and Canada, not, not bad, those kind of standings. But innovation is a, is a very important word because it, it covers the step-by-step way of doing things better. Scott, it's a, it should be distinctive from invention. Invention comes from the Latin word, which means to invenire, uh, to, uh, to come in to arrive at. It's kind of a bolt from the blue or discovering something of the Earth's mysteries. Whereas innovation comes from the Latin word innovare, which means to refresh or to alter or constantly improve. So innovation is somewhat more step-by-step and invention is kind of the bolt, but the two together work very well. And why it's important to Canada is it's so important, I think, to enhance the welfare of all of our people and the public interest to constantly be assessing how we do things better and have that culture of curiosity and that sense of positive action to improve the lives of others that is such an important ingredient to making a healthy society. You've written an entire book uh, featuring Canadian uh, innovators, and it does a fantastic job showing the extent to which Canadians have created 
impact through innovations from healthcare to sports uh, to you name it. Can you describe three Canadian innovators that you are particularly impressed by their impact on the world? Well, we we started out, Tom Jenkins and I, when we wrote the book to uh, collect um, 50 stories of Canadian innovators because we wanted Canada not to keep its light under a bushel, but to um, have it lighten brightly and inform Canadians and inform the world. And um, we found that we got to 50 pretty fast. So we said, well, it's coming out in 2017, so we'll do 150 to mark our 150th anniversary. We got there pretty fast. So we kept going. And uh, when we got to 297, the publisher said, that's as large as we will go in terms of the book. So I had to stop there. And then we established a website to add other stories. So that book of the 297 Canadian innovations and innovators is now in, I think, almost all the high schools in the country. And then we did a children's book, which was fewer pages and more pictures. And that's in most of the primary schools in the country. And then worked at having lesson plans for teachers so they could take those stories and make them alive. I guess the favorites that the children like uh, would be peanut butter, which was uh, invented in uh, Montreal and Canada. Uh, pretty helpful to people in Georgia and South Carolina growing peanuts, but it was a Canadian invention. Uh, the next one that uh, that I often speak about is the light bulb, which we think of as uh, Thomas Edison with General Electric or Westinghouse in the United States. In fact, it was two Toronto inventors around in the 1860s who uh, realized that if you put a little later than that, it might have been 1880s, if you put a, a, a current of electricity through a metal that was resistance, like tungsten, for example, or a cruder metal in those days, uh, it produced both light and heat. Uh, and then they said, well, the light is fine, but the heat is bad, especially if it burns people. So they put a, a glass globe around it, the so-called bulb. And uh, out of that came uh, the light bulb, which uh, replaced um, kerosene lamps and candles. But alas, as is so often in the case in Canada with our innovations and inventions, um, they had the engineering genius, but they didn't have the financing, they didn't have the marketing, they didn't have the production, they didn't have the sales channels and so on. And Thomas Edison bought up their patents and it became a US invention and helped to transform General Electric. So that's a kind of sad story. Some of the others that really were exciting um, are ones in our pre-European culture. Um, things like the, uh, the kayak, for example, which is a wonderful means of transportation uh, for waters and the same Inuit people also developed the first life jacket, which today has taught so many children to swim and saved so many lives by people wearing it. Um, but that was something that the Inuit seal hunters devised as a kind of seal skin vest they wore from the up to the top of their armpits and down into their, their legs to cover the core. So if they fell into the icy waters while hunting seal, their body temperature would be uh, preserved and they could make their way out. You know, quite remarkable. And other uh, Northern in innovations like uh, like the igloo, for example, 17 different words to describe snow. And then just a little more south, the, the canoe is a wonderful vehicle for voyages that uh, our First Nations people developed. So those are three or four innovations that mean an awful lot to me. One that's also special is um, my wife and I have done some work with disabled children or children with disabilities. Frank Heyman was a um, phys ed teacher and guidance counselor in high school in Toronto. And through the 50s, 
he had developed physical ed programs for for kids with physical and intellectual disabilities because they were sort of left behind with sports and with you know phys ed classes and so on. So he developed the Special Olympics. And then in John Kennedy's administration in the early 1960s in the United States, uh, his sister and Sergeant Shriver were commissioned by the president to establish a Special Olympics program in the United States. They brought Frank Hayden as the first chief executive officer. And we never looked back in terms of Special Olympics for kids with some kind of disability or special ability. And uh, we've never looked back. It now covers the whole world. So those are some Canadian things that are pretty exciting. Those are wonderful examples uh, to uh, the present day. Canadians have innovated, both bettering the country, but also bettering the world. So David, one of the key components of fostering innovation is fostering an innovative uh, culture, which is, I know, something that you and your foundation does a lot of work on. What do you think are some of the characteristics of a culture of innovation? I think, first of all, is curiosity. It's the willingness to ask the question why and then pursue that and to say, why not? Why can we not take the answer to this question and other questions to do things better? So that was the reason for writing those books, not simply to celebrate Canadian innovation, but to encourage our people generally, and particularly young people, to um, strengthen their sense of curiosity and asking why, and then begin step by step to put things together that uh, sort of make that why turn into positive action. I often quote George Bernard Shaw, who said, some people see things as they are and wonder why. That's the curiosity part. We dream of things that ought to be and ask why not. That's the action part. Taking your curiosity, dreaming of something that ought to be a moral imperative, and then why not getting on with it. So in the Rideau Hall Foundation, uh, we uh, run the Governor General's Innovation Awards to celebrate great Canadian innovators each year. Uh, we have a, a high school student program called uh, Ingenious Plus. The children's innovation book was called Ingenious. So this is Ingenious Plus. And that's working with the Junior Chamber of Commerce across the country uh, it, for regional competitions and regional opportunities for young innovators to be supported and mentored in their work to innovate and uh, ultimately to, to produce some great innovations. We run Canada's Innovation Week for the Government of Canada to celebrate innovation. And in that week, we unveil an annual survey we do on the culture of innovation. How are we doing as Canadians in terms of having an innovative mindset and devising ways to improve on that? So for me, it goes back to my installation address as Governor General in 2010, which was entitled, A Smart and Caring Nation, A Call to Service. And innovation was one of those polar pillars, which is constantly thinking of doing things better and improving the human condition as a consequence. David, that's a great transition to another topic I would love to explore, which is the Rideau Hall Foundation's Culture of, Index, uh, Culture of Innovation Index. Can you please describe for listeners, what are the components of this uh, index? Well, it's something that we run annually to measure whether we're moving upwards or downwards in a culture of innovation, thinking of doing things better in the country. And we publish the results during Canada's Innovation Week, which is usually the third week in May, will be this uh, 2023rd, when we announce the Governor General Innovation Awards. So this is a nice uh, program on which to launch that. And what we are primarily focused on is how do Canadians feel about innovation? Do they understand what it means, doing things better, improving the human condition? 
what are the ingredients that make for good innovation, good innovation culture, good innovation nation, um, and who's responsible? Uh, who owns the idea? Who does something with it? And what we find is that there aren't dramatic changes from year to year, but you pay attention to the trajectories in the components up or down, especially where you can influence them and nudge them ahead. And by and large, Canadians believe in innovation. They have some understanding that it's doing things better. It perhaps focus a bit much on the, the invention, which is important, but a little less so on the step-by-step -step improvement. Um, but then it appears that we're pretty good at endorsing the idea, but a little less good at how you take that idea and carry through to something that is practical and in fact changes how we do things. And that involves in the private sector investment, um, attracting talent that itself is driven to do things better, being prepared to compete in challenging environments, not just your local environment, but not just the North American environment, but the world, to draw talent from uh, the entire world as you embark upon that. Those are the areas where I, I think we have improvement. And also there's a bit of a tendency in Canada to look to governments for innovation. Uh, governments don't innovate as such. Governments create the conditions in which innovation can and should thrive, uh, beginning with a good education system. Uh, that, to me, is the most important thing of all. And in particular, having an education system that is internationally oriented in the sense that we want to educate our young people to be global citizens with all the curiosity that comes from that. And we want to be the place in the world where students will come from every corner of the globe because we have the best education system for them to improve their talents and in many cases join um, the Canadian family um, and make their permanent lives here. So we have a ways to go and we'd like, we'd like to think that by conducting this index each year and then spreading its uh, lessons in uh, widely across the country, we can make that innovative itself, just have an innovative culture. And I think that there are few people in Canada better poised to speak on the topic of education than yourself, given your role as the former principal of McGill University, as well as the former president of the University of Waterloo. And I believe the only non-American to serve as the chair of the board of overseers of Harvard College. So you also have experience with American post-secondary institutions and post-secondary institutions in the UK through your graduate studies. And one of the things I would love to explore is University of Waterloo has become one of the leading, if not the leading university uh, in the world for worker integrated learning. And the co-op program at the University of Waterloo is renowned across Canada, but also in the United States and many other countries. And has become a real model for how work integrated learning can uh, help drive uh, student outcomes. How uh, can a co-op model and work integrated learning in general contribute to a culture uh, of innovation? Well, let me answer that in two parts. Uh, first of all, Scott, I've been so fortunate. I was uh, grew up in Northern Ontario and I had the great good fortune to have my first university experience at Harvard, which uh, was terrific. I remember the principal of our high school wasn't prepared to do the letter of recommendation for me because he said, I don't want you going to a third rate American university. And I said, sir, I suspect there may be one or two third rate or second rate, but I, I don't think Harvard is one of those. And then he said, well, and he was a good man, just that he had a fairly narrow outlook on these things, um, said, uh, well, if you go to the States, you'll stay there and we'll be lost. I said, I don't think so, sir. I think I'll be back in Canada. Uh, but surely that's my choice. He says, well, I won't write the letter. So I went down the hall to the 
history teacher who was also the football coach, he says, I'll write the letter for you. He said, you've been a big frog in a really small pond and you got to go and get your head knocked off by people that are faster, meaner, tougher, and smarter than you are. You are and guess what? They were. Harvard was a wonderful education. So it's a traditional university, perhaps the most influential in the world in the number of people it's educated and provided opportunities for great futures. Then I went to Cambridge to study law, another outstanding institution. Came back as a law professor and I was principal of McGill. Again, an outstanding university, one that would stand in the model of Harvard and Cambridge with somewhat similar aspirations and certainly in that, those levels of excellence. And then Waterloo, which was a new university, it was about 45 years old when I arrived. And it had a reputation for being very innovative, uh, the most innovative university in the country by the McLean surveys that have gone on for a long time. And what was unique of Waterloo when it started, it was certain that it would not be the classical traditional university. Uh, so it started out differently. And it introduced, as you call, experiential learning right from the beginning on the basis that when you can combine theory and practice together, they provide a great learning environment. Um, all models are wrong, some are useful. All theories are interesting, some of which work and many of don't, but have to be constantly um, revised. In fact, that's how one gains knowledge by revising traditional knowledge and perfecting, et cetera. And so what co-op education does is it says theory and practice go hand in hand and inform one another and help you to see things whole. And that advancement in science, for example, is not simply linear from the basic idea, the theory, and then the uh, consideration of applications of that theory, and then the pilot projects and the trial experiment to uh, uh, an actual product or service, and then something that's commercialized. It's also the practical problem you're trying to solve and then moving backwards to build some theory into that as to why it works and how it can work differently. So when you see that as a two-way street and not a linear one-way street, good things happen. I wouldn't start a university tomorrow without experiential learning built in because it's such a good discipline for young people in terms of how does this thing work and does it work? Uh, and being respectful, both of the practical application and also the theory. So it's just a story to illustrate that, Scott, um, in how we recognized excellence. Uh, one of the first winners of the Governor General's Innovation Awards, which we first created back in 2014 when I was at Rideau Hall, was Jeff Don, DHN, who's a professor of engineering at Dalhousie University. And Jeff and his colleagues have been working for about 30 years now on the innovation in lithium ion batteries. We haven't seen much progress in batteries in about 20 years ago. The first automobile in Germany in the 1870s was electric battery. And unfortunately, around about 1890, we turned to the internal combustion uh, engine because it was very useful in converting oil, gasoline into energy. And it's taken us a long time to get off that and back to electric vehicles. But the major obstacle was battery storage. And, and moving from nickel uh, iodide batteries to lithium ion, Jeff and his colleagues were able to uh, make uh, batteries longer, stronger, faster, and cheaper, step by step by step. And his first um, industrial partner, supported by National Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada Grants, was 3M. 
which was experimenting with that improving batteries. And then Elon Musk came along and Jeff's lab is now the largest research center outside of Musk's own internal uh, operations in terms of lithium-ion batteries. And it's been phenomenal the progress he's made step-by-step step over 30 years with different composites, different layers, different lenses, different ways of arranging things to strengthen the lithium-ion battery. And uh, about two or three years ago, the Nobel Prize in Physics was won by the two theorists that understood the interaction of electrons in lithium-ion um, compositions, explaining a theory. But Jeff was the guy that was applying that theory, the how of it, as opposed to the why of it, all this size, and wasn't included in that Nobel Prize. And it really should have been. Nobel Prize is very important. But one should put the theory and the application together uh, so that uh, you see the thin hole. In fact, you know, one of the heroes at McGill uh, was, um, uh, I'll, I'll stop it for a moment because my stories are getting too long. Thanks for that background, uh, Mr. Johnson. And uh, it is so impressive what Kitchener-Waterloo has been able to foster in terms of entrepreneurial activity. I believe the Kitchener-Waterloo area has one of the highest density of startups and small businesses in North America. And that's reflected in the University of Waterloo, but also very much in like the DNA of the Kitchener-Waterloo region, of which you lived in that region for uh, many years. What do you think in particular has contributed to Kitchener-Waterloo having such an entrepreneurial culture? Well, I think it's in the history, uh, and I call it barn raising. Uh, we lived 10 miles away from the university uh, on a 100-acre farm in Mennonite country. So all of our neighbors were Mennonite people with 100 or 200 acres farm, and they were horse and buggy people. So I'd wander across Canada speaking about Canada's technology triangle, which was uh, the area of, of Cambridge in the south, and Waterloo in the north, and Guelph in the east uh, as a, you know, a kind of a nirvana. And I'd come home in the evening and I'd be with my neighbors who took very careful choices about what technology they used and didn't. They used a horse and buggy on the road, no cars or trucks, but they used tractors on their farm and so on. But the notion of barn raising is helping a neighbor who, or a newcomer to start their farm and to build a barn was part of their, 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 their whole culture. And equally, if somebody's barn burned down, they were all there to put up the fire and then rebuild it. And that notion of sharing ideas, sharing labor, assisting one another is part of the innovation culture of Waterloo. And it was natural that the University of Waterloo would emerge out of that with the notion of getting things done and helping one another, one another get things done in a very cooperative fashion. And so when you had an experience-based culture of education at the University of Waterloo, where the engineers do eight four-month academic terms and six-month, six four-month work terms and intersperse the, the, the two, you get those things coming together and the notion of people helping people, including us having 4,000 employers who are part of the teachers or part of the educational system for that degree. Imagine that. It wasn't just seven or 800 professors. It was 4,000 or 5,000 employers that employed and therefore taught our students during those uh, six uh, work terms. And it's amazing the number of startup companies occurred uh, from students uh, while they were students there. Perhaps the most famous one is Mike Lazaridis, who began his company when he was in, I think, third year engineering on a four-month 
work term and uh, actually wanted to postpone coming back for his academic term. He was given one postponement, then he wanted to postpone it again. And the dean says, no, you've got to do it completely. So I can't come back because I've now got five employees and their future hangs on me. So Mike didn't finish his, his degree, later got an honorary degree when he was chancellor, but um, developed his own company, Blackboard Research in Motion was called then, right out of his student experience. And I serve on the board of a company called D2L Desire to Learn. John Baker started it a little over 20 years ago. And he began as a uh, systems engineering student, taking his professor's courses and putting them online for the continuation program. That company, Desire to Learn now, is one of the largest in the world in providing online learning and using online and face-to-face -face experiences to improve how people learn. And it's very exciting. John, when he came across the stage graduation with his engineering degree, I said, John, how's the company going? You've got about 20 employees now? He says, well, no, sir, we only have two. It's just my sister and myself, and we're not yet paid. And I said, don't worry, you will be. Well, John's company went public a year or so ago, so I joined the board at that time because I said I'd be helping to help when they went public. And they've got now 1,500, 1,600 employees around the world and are unique in doing two important things, Scott. What we've learned about the human brain in the last 20 years is, I think, equivalent to what we've learned about the human brain in the previous 2,000 years. And in particular, we've learned much more about how the brain learns. And it learns in many different ways. Um, my young number five daughter did her doctorate on how the mind learns in, in psychology, educational psychology at, at Harvard, and now works on a company that just exploits that. She would say that you have 25 different learning tools, and she has a, a learning disability in one of her tools, which she learned to navigate around thanks to a good psychologist when she was seven or eight. And so what she works on and what D2L trying to exploit is to develop a customized approach to learning where we assess the strongest learning tools an individual has in their mental makeup and navigate around the weaker tools. And we can do that with digital intervention. And that's the other big revolution of our time, the digital communication revolution. And desire to learn like others are exploiting that. But that, that started with John, you know, putting his professor's notes online. And out of that has come a, a flourishing revolutionary company. So that's Waterloo of attracting young people who are very curious and very driven to put their ideas in action and creating a climate where not only is that welcome, but it's part of the educational curriculum and part of the surrounding mentors and financing and superstructure that said, this is a good thing. How do we make it go? Yeah, it's so impressive what the University of Waterloo has built and what, what you built during your time there as uh, president. And I know uh, we share a good friend in Dr. Tom Poor, uh, who I know uh, worked with you. And uh, he said mm -hmm. it, to me that it was the one of the honors of his life uh, working with you and uh, how uh, impactful that experience was on his life and, and career. And uh, uh, so well, thank works, you, Chet. That, 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 that works both ways, Scott. Tom was a wonderful influence on all of us. I mean, he was a guy that really did understand that theory and practice hand in hand. And so he handled technology transfer for us until he went to be the director of the Ontario Innovation Center and, and was a marvelous evangelist for that. But, you know, I was thinking of Tom uh, a week ago, Monday night, I appeared before the House of Commons Committee on Science and Innovation, a new committee chaired by Christy Dirk Duncan, um, who's the Minister of Science. 
And they're looking at a moonshot. What is Canada's moonshot? Is it artificial intelligence, which we do so well in, in southern Ontario, Toronto, et cetera? Uh, is it some major aspect of climate change uh, where Canada has some very gifted approaches? Uh, is it improved vaccinations, vaccines, where Canada played a big part in the workup to the COVID vaccines? Well, my approach was a little different. I said to the, to the committee, I, I said, rather than trying to identify one single thing, Kennedy shot to the moon, um, I think we should think of a platform on which we will see many good moonshots arise. And that platform is to be the best country in the world in terms of education, both its accessibility and its excellence. And we should see ourselves as the Athens to the new Romes of the 21st century. And people around the world would say, where do I go for the best education and research environment that I can find? Silicon Valley, Boston with 50 universities, with Harvard, MIT, et cetera. No, come to Canada because we do provide a quality of education and a sense of collaboration that is second to none. And so we should promote international education. And it doesn't require an additional billions of dollars to do this moonshot. It simply means adding some capacity to our institutions, universities, and colleges and recognizing that foreign tuition fees more than pay for that extra capacity, and yet are considerably less than the great institutions around the world charge. And so Canada would be the place of choice for a bright student in any part of the world to come for further study, as well as a very, very welcoming place to difference. And young Canadians, instead of only 10% or so going abroad at some point in their university or college education for an academic exchange, for a volunteer experience with an NGO, um, to, uh, to work in another uh, situation, and to become global citizens. That expanded outlook that comes from that international exposure would do wonders to enhance the curiosity and the application of doing things better. So what I left with the committee is think about that, of uh, putting a major emphasis on international education, research collaboration across boundaries, what I call the diplomacy of knowledge. And we will have a platform in which we will see many moonshots emerge, just like Mike Lazaridis' Blackbird. My own life experience is a testament to the importance of international experience. I grew up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and then I also went to school in the United States for my undergrad. And the experience of living in the United States at a relatively early stage in my life opened my eyes uh, to a whole different uh, set of opportunities. I decided to come back to Canada uh, like yourself, uh, Mr. Johnson, but it's to say providing more opportunities for young Canadians to go study abroad and live abroad and experience other cultures is I think something that is uh, incredibly important. And Canada is a huge leader of international students coming to Canada, which I think is fantastic. How do we also provide opportunity for uh, Canadians to go uh, and get that international experience in tandem? Well, we should do that. And of course, you and I are singing to the choir in that respect. Uh, many more young Canadians should travel abroad. Many more Canadian businesses should be 90-10 businesses. Only 10% of your business in Canada, 90% outside, and preferably not just the United States. Our, we have five daughters, and they began their international travel and exposure at age 12 and uh, have now in various uh, reasons, 
degrees, volunteer work, professional experience, uh, et cetera, uh, have been to about 30 different countries, including two of them who went to study Chinese and speak Mandarin. But I watched the formation, the development of our children from age 12 on, and the international experience did four things. One, they became more curious. Two, they became more tolerant. You're different from me. That's okay. Nobody gets hurt. What is that difference all about? Three, their judgment became better, much better at ensuring you have the other side of the story, the full range of facts, seeing things whole before you make a judgment. And fake news, I mean, that was something that they spot in a second. And finally, they became more empathetic, uh, not just sympathetic. I sympathize for your sad situation. I see your situation. I'll do something about it. And self-reliance, self-confidence, resilience, all of those qualities come from that experience, and we should emphasize it. The book, the last book that we wrote in this area is uh, called Empathy, comes out in January. It's a sequel to a book called Trust we did about two years ago, and trust and empathy go together, I think. The two books we did before that were called, were innovation books. And the book we did before this, all these emanated from my time as being GG, it's called The Idea of Canada, which is about the values of the country and letters and so on. For me, that's all a composite of a really beautiful society, this experiment, which is Canada. But innovation, curiosity, doing things better lies at the heart of it. Mr. Johnson, it has been such a pleasure interviewing you. And on a personal note, I really want to emphasize to young Canadians how much of a role model I think you are to so many folks uh, in the sense of your ability to balance so many different things, that over the course of your life, you have been a university president, you have been an academic, and you're an expert on many legal issues. You are also uh, a very accomplished athlete uh, in a variety of different sports, a loving father of five uh, daughters, a committed uh, husband, someone very active in philanthropy. And it's to say that I think one of the challenges of living in a, a very complex world is the ability to balance all of these things, that sometimes people can be very professionally successful, but have a lot of uh, personal challenges. And I think one of the things I want to emphasize to our listeners is uh, I view you as a huge role model in many different ways, including your ability to balance so many different things in a complex uh, and ever-changing world. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. Well, I just say, Scott, thank you for the, that thoughtfulness. I guess what you learn, I think, is humility through all of this. <laughs> Churchill was once reported when he was defeated uh, after the end of World War II as the great premier by uh, Clement Attlee's Labour government. And reporter says, uh, Mr. Churchill, uh, your successor, Mr. Attlee, what do you think of him? He's a very humble man. And Churchill says, Mr. Attlee has a, Mr. Attlee has a great deal to be humble about. And that's kind of corny. But you know, humility is an important virtue, I really do believe, of always learning and recognizing your extraordinary debt to others. And for me, in my installation addresses, Gigi, I was entitled, again, A Smart and Caring Nation, A Call to Service. And I said, if you remember only three words of what I say today, they are cherish our teachers, cherish our teachers, because apart from our family, it is our teachers who have the most influence on, on you. And if you're lucky, as I have, if we had four hours together in the Senate chamber, I'd tell you 50 stories of teachers, mentors, coaches that have made a difference in my life. And if I have been able to do something useful, it's because of the good fortune of running across people that have influenced me in these innovative ways. And then, of course, my children, because all the important things in life you learn through your children's eyes. Thank you so much. And that is very wise words to, to end the interview. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast this afternoon. Great to be with you, Scott. Keep well. Perfect. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and through our email list. And be sure to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. Have feedback on today's episode? Let us know directly in the app. Thanks again for listening and for joining the new wave of entrepreneurs. Till next time.